Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And today we're talking about DHT, DHT lowering drugs. Um, again, uh, DHT has been getting a lot of attention. Uh, videos came out on YouTube, compelling research on the benefits of DHT. And then a subsequent response video uh, by another individual said compelling research that DHT is a trash hormone, which I found pretty comical. And then there's also been two recent uh, Drive podcasts uh, with Peter Atia, who's a medical doctor who's talked to a couple of urologists uh, specifically about DHT, finasteride, the potential of post-finasteride syndrome. What is it and how often does it happen? So we're going to be kind of diving through that and also going through uh, actually a pretty new article that uh, was kind of talking about every bad thing that could possibly happen if you take uh, finasteride or dutasteride. So mm-hmm. this will be a fun one. Yeah, these are some of our favorite topics for people that have heard our podcast before, even back in the very early days of the podcast with poor production quality. We were talking about androgen receptors. We were talking about finasteride, dutasteride. And um, we do what's called non-systematic reviews. So we uh, cherry pick uh, what we think are some of the most interesting and or best and or worst articles and then explain them to you at um, a level that most can understand, I suppose. But one thing that uh, jumps out at me is you mentioned the YouTube videos that are kind of going back and forth. DHT is a trash hormone. Uh, Is DHT a trash hormone? DHT is amazing. DHT is terrible. Um, It just occurs to me every time everybody's talking about DHT, how about how special it is? What's the, how many DHT receptors are there? Yeah. As far as we know, there's not a specific DHT receptor, um, but the way the DHT interacts with the androgen receptor is going to be slightly different than testosterone, slightly different than oxandrolone or nandrolone or any other any number of other androgens that you're going to interact there, they're all going to have slightly different characteristics. Um, And a concept that I don't think I've heard others talk about is net androgens. I know that you and I have mentioned that certainly talking with patients and I believe on the podcast. Um, So net androgens is kind of a way to think about this. Uh, Your DHT is more potent, um, but it is not necessary for every individual and for the majority of individuals provided they have sufficient net androgens, they're not going to have, you know, a issue with a slightly lower level DHT. Um, So that's one concept we can dive into a little bit deeper. Yeah, Yeah, DHT is the vodka of the androgens. So if you're trying to get drunk off of your androgens, if you're trying to have that effort feel good um, benefit that androgens can give you, among other benefits, um, then Certainly, some people can get that easier if they have a lot of DHT, if they have a lot of vodka, but if they have a lot of other androgens that are weaker, um, whether it's wine or beer or accomplish the same goal, it's like the kombucha of androgens. It's weak enough. It's an androgen, but it's weak enough to where most people don't feel a significant effect from just that. But yeah, you accomplish the same goal. Of course, this is complicated because in various tissues, it's intrachronology. Again, Dr. Fernand Labry. Um, it's the analogy of the plumbing being the DHT level in your serum, and then the intracellular DHT that's actually binding to the receptor inside various cells is different depending on if it's your penile skin or your skin of the scalp, or if it's your hair follicle. 
yeah. know, prostate. There's, and those are some of the tissues that have had the most attention because disease states will manifest in those. Uh, this article listed, I think, about seven different things that can be uh, attributed, in their opinion, to, uh, in this case, finasteride, or we'll just say 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Um, and as we'll get to in more detail, finasteride and dutasteride are actually quite different uh, in terms of drugs. Uh, but they talked about depression. Um, so that's a good place to start because mental health is something that we think is very important and it's a growing concern. Um, and people have more awareness about it now. So what do we think? Does finasteride and or dutasteride, do these two cause depression? The way to think about this is having a low androgen pool certainly can cause depression. And having a large shift in your progestogen pool can also cause depression. So there are multiple mechanisms by which finasteride and to some degree dutasteride can cause or worsen depression in those that are already at risk of it. For example, someone that is having a huge shift in um, a, a, neuro, a progestogenic neurosteroid, then yes, it could potentially get worse. If you took a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor or finasteride at the wrong time of your menstrual cycle, then you could potentially worsen PMS or PMDD. Um, but uh, not everybody gets depression that starts it. It's a, another reason why before you start a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, even if it's topical finasteride, you need baseline labs. Yeah, baseline labs are important. And kind of the two buckets I think about here are, like you said, there's your testosterone androgen pool. And certainly we know that individuals who go on androgen deprivation therapy, they develop depression you know, quite commonly because you have a lack of androgens and they affect the way you feel to a very potent degree. Mm -hmm. So you have a sort of, you know, androgen deprivation light or diet androgen deprivation therapy if you're already at a low net level of androgens. And the other being, um, we certainly know finasteride will kind of slowly drop off serum pregnenolone levels, um, which in males, you know, probably does contribute to that downstream allopregnenolone. Certainly does if you are ingesting pregnenolone orally. Yeah. Um, and how much of that is blocked by the finasteride? I don't think there's a ton of studies there. Uh, but certainly that may be why anxiety and depression can manifest whenever these things are introduced. Um, and you also have to think about that individuals who are seeking treatment for hair loss are probably bothered or distressed by that to some degree, which is why they sought out treatment in the first place. Yeah. On that note, what would you rather be, bald or impotent? Well, I think one of the best ways to treat depression is to regrow someone's hair. That would make me happy if I was in that situation, which... In fact, I would argue every male that has circulating levels of androgens that are in an average male ratio is eventually going to develop androgenic alopecia. I think the statistics say somewhere around 80% by age 70 to 80. Yeah, it's about 10% per decade. And probably we're going to see that accelerate a bit as people have lower and lower SHBGs and worse nutrient status. So yeah, by age 90, probably 90%. Yeah. You, have a, you have a Ronald Reagan once in a while yes. that gets away with it. But um, yeah. for most what of us... What was his stack? He was a dutasteride bro, I would bet. Maybe so. Um, although it wasn't I don't know when he was that time, president, but... and I don't know exactly when it was approved. <laughs> it was so. the 1980s. So. <laughs> probably, probably not the... Unless he took the research chemical MK906. Maybe he took MK906. He was on MK before it was cool. Yeah. Uh, also on that note... I love 
asking individuals, whether they're friends or family, if they have, if they're concerned with their hair loss. Because a lot of people that are having their hair absolutely shredded say, I have great hair, I haven't lost any. This is true. People will deny, deny, deny until it is apparently obvious to everyone around them and they have to concede. So it's great to chat about. And some people, they just don't know that there are options out there. So if you're losing your hair, then more than likely you can do something about it. Yeah. I also love the interaction with partners. And I'll use myself in this example because people like talking about themselves or maybe I think it's funny. But uh, yes, it is possible that your wife or your spouse can simultaneously say, well, you're not losing any hair at all. You don't need to do anything. And also say, if you lost your hair, then you'd be significantly less attractive. So there's that, there's that odd catch-22. The catch-22 is um, often your partner says, well, your hair is great. You shouldn't do anything about it. But by the time they're telling you to do something about it, it's borderline too late. Yeah. Prevention is the key when it comes to androgenic alopecia, at least for saving a lot of money. Um, I suppose if you have an unlimited budget and a lot of grafts, a lot of donor sites, then you can get a pretty good recovery from even a substantial amount of hair loss, but you're going to save yourself a lot of uh, money and time by starting earlier rather than later. Um, I guess on to number two for potential side effects of finasteride and butasteride, erectile dysfunction. Yeah, I guess if your penis falls off, then it can't have an erection very easily. That's pretty dysfunctional. If you're a rat. <laughs> yeah. But in all seriousness, uh, this is certainly a plausible side effect, um, especially if you have a high amount of inhibition in the 5-alpha reductase isoenzymes that are concentrated in pubic skin, which is penile skin, scrotal skin. Um, you could see a loss of sensitivity. Perhaps this is a uh, more significant effect in individuals that are uh, less sensitive to androgens that have a lot of CAG repeats. See our podcast on that. Perhaps it would also apply more in the case if you did not have foreskin, if you were circumcised. Um, again, uh, less receptors. Um, just like there is a huge debate on whether or not it is inhumane to circumcise a child, which maybe we'll talk about that in the future. Um, and my various experiences, people know I delivered uh, several hundred babies and I have a couple male children myself, but um, we'll leave that for another day. That's how I think of the potential reasonable side effect of ED. Yeah. In talking about the differences in dutasteride and finasteride, um, the, what is it, the tribe in one of those countries in South America, we were looking into this a bit earlier. Uh, I know that uh, Derek with More Plates, More Dates and Andrew Huberman had a great conversation about this. And those individuals will lack the type 2 5-alpha reductase enzyme yep. um, while still having type 1 and type 3 intact. So they should have some level of DHT, um, but the type 2, which is heavily concentrated in prostate and genital skin, leads to a uh, incomplete or very limited development of the genital, uh, external genitals until their testosterone levels rise considerably. Yep. So their pseudomaphrodites being a very potent inhibitor of that type 2 mm-hmm. uh, leads me to think that would be a more significant concern there compared to dutasteride. Um, and, you know, we don't have the same exact cohorts, but when we look at the side effects between, let's say, five milligrams finasteride versus half a milligram of dutasteride, it seems like the dutasteride is better tolerated, at least from a sexual standpoint. Yeah, I think it's a good summary of ED. The next one uh, kind of goes hand in hand with it. It is decreased libido. 
Yeah. And again, same thing. If you are someone who has low net antigens, it's very plausible that pulling down that DHT, that's kind of doing the heavy lifting. If you have a low testosterone can kind of uh, unmask this low net antigens in, in your libido. Um, and the same thing with the CAG repeats. Um, this is something not a lot of people talk about, but something that our clinic will test for um, in the right patient. So if you have someone who's very concerned and they want to have all the data up front before they start on something like finasteride, uh, probably the higher that number, the less sensitive the receptor and the more likely that person is to be sort of dependent on that DHT to get androgenic signaling. Um, although not always, if you have a very high testosterone, low DHT, and even if above average CAG repeats, that's not a guarantee that you're going to get side effects. It's just something to consider in your discussion with the patient. Yeah, the next potential side effect is impaired spermatogenesis. Uh, this is usually discussed in the concept of what's called intratesticular testosterone and the positive feedback that intratesticular testosterone has on um, Sertoli cells and the seminiferous tubules and um, basically the area where the sperm is formed. However, what this really is is impaired uh, intratesticular androgenic signaling because, of course, uh, you know, if anything, finasteride or dutasteride increase testosterone itself. Um, yes, DHT can be um, synthesized without testosterone as an intermediary, uh, contrary to what we previously believed. But uh, in general, dutasteride, one of the main downsides of that compared to finasteride, other than its slightly longer dose-dependent half-life, which we talked about extensively in the past, is... Including a post about a year ago on yeah. your Instagram. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about that quite a bit, and maybe we'll get a little bit into it as well with um, rehashing some of the uh, pharmacokinetic curves. But uh, basically, if you plan to conceive within six months, pretty reasonable to not take either finasteride or dutasteride because of impaired spermatogenesis and theoretical epigenetic or genomic changes, um, especially dutasteride. Yeah, and this goes for a number of uh, different medications. Anything that's potentially antiandrogenic, um, I would personally stay away from, and we counsel our patients prior to conception to avoid these things for at least six months. Uh, you know, there's a paper that came out probably about a year ago with metformin and the fathers taking this, you know, and seeing some higher rates of birth defects in the children. Yep. Now, do we know if, I think actually both groups were diabetic in that case, um, but again, small study, but to err on the side of caution, like obviously you don't want to have uncontrolled diabetes when you're trying to conceive, that's going to also have some unfavorable epigenetic changes, but definitely talk with your doctor or nurse practitioner and see you know, which medications would be reasonable to discontinue in order to you know, have the largest number of sperm, the healthiest sperm, so that the best sperm wins the race to the egg. That's a good summary. The next potential side effect is impaired hepatic effects or um, liver effects. And I don't think that this one has um, much ground to stand on. Yeah, this was, it seemed largely based on some uh, mouse data, some mice that are predisposed to become obese. Uh, they call these Zucker rats. They're adorable if you ever look up a photo of one. They've got these tiny little legs. Uh, kind of remind me of a bumblebee because they don't look very functional, but they manage to function. Mm -hmm. uh, but basically when they knock out type 1, I believe, 5-alpha reductase in these mice, uh, they become obese. They get a lot of like intrahepatic fat, visceral fat. And personally, you know, having been on dutasteride for probably at least a year and then getting a DEXA scan, my visceral fat remained very low. So I am not seeing that in vivo in myself. Uh, 
plenty of patients that we've also seen on 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, liver function doesn't seem to be affected, mm -hmm. visceral fat accumulation doesn't seem to be affected. Uh, probably, again, the net androgens is a much more important factor here. Yeah, the main thing to keep in mind with the liver is uh, first pass effect of medications that are 5-alpha reduced in the liver. Like, um, you know, uh, progesterone. Yeah, it will affect the downstream of something else like progesterone. You're not going to ever get 100% inhibition, but you can get quite a lot. Yep. Um, next, we have adverse ocular effects. So there was a whole host of things that were thrown out there, um, but dry eyes, which is actually a very common condition, mm -hmm. um, I think up to 35% of the population, you know, given the right age group, will suffer from this or at least have the sensation. Uh, and this one I had not heard of before, actually. I, mm -hmm. It wasn't on my radar as a potential side effect from finasteride or dutasteride. Um, but there may be a bit of plausibility to this, given how the uh, meibomian glands work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, meibomian glands uh, and, uh, in general, a lot of skin outside of pubic skin has a high concentration of type 3, 5-alpha reductase. So it kind of makes sense, again, using the analogy of the skin. You have less sebum production. Uh, you have less lubrication. The eye will be drier. Your skin will be drier. You'll have less cystic acne. You'll have uh, less sebum production in the skin as well, which is a benefit. Um, I have seen a huge benefit in my own skin, and I'm very predisposed to sebum production and acne. And uh, dutasteride can make a huge benefit with that. Um, but if someone is predisposed to dry eyes, then it could certainly make that worse. Yeah, and another sort of interesting pearl here is they've actually discovered a type 3 5-alpha reductase deficiency. Mm -hmm. um, and this causes some you know, balance and coordination issues and developmental problems, um, which again, going back to DHT and, and specifically in different tissues, doesn't mean these people are totally deficient of DHT just in certain target tissues. Um, they have some developmental issues, which is why you don't want to stunt that during in utero, early childhood, or pubertal development. You want to have that DHT around during those time periods. Um, but I believe 30 or 40 patients have been diagnosed with this. It's extremely rare. Um, but as part of this pathology, they do tend to have dysfunctional um, meibomian glands. So they're very predisposed to dry eyes and a number of other things. And, and for those asking or wondering, yes, they do have normal structure and function of the genitals. Yeah, and there's not a type 1 deficiency, I think, that's been recognized yet, except for the ones we've induced in mice. And there's some differences in the way that some drugs affect type 1 and type 2 in mice. Mm -hmm. And that being said, uh, think of the type 2 and type 3 5-alpha reductase deficiencies as extreme examples because they have had that deficiency the entire life. Yeah, including in utero, including during puberty. Yep. This is like the extreme. You know, you took uh, what? 40 milligrams of dutasteride per day from the day that you were conceived. Yeah, that's an uh, extreme example. So uh, I think that uh, that sums up the dry eye. The next effect is renal effects, which again, uh, like hepatic effects, not concerning. Yeah, and then we have diabetes. So uh, I believe this paper pulled a study that compared um, BPH patients, so patients with uh, enlarged prostate and urinary symptoms, uh, what treatment they were randomized to, and then found an association in one direction with uh, dutasteride and those patients being more likely to get subsequent diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. 
another paper found just the opposite. I think in this case, it was uh, dutasteride compared to Flomax or Tamsulosum. And the dutasteride group actually had a lower incidence of developing diabetes. So I think these just are happenstance, they're coincidence. I don't think that dutasteride is going to make or break anyone's risk for type 2 diabetes. Um, a lot of the risk factors for type 2 diabetes also overlap with BPH. If you have inflammation, a lot of excess insulin, a lot of growth signaling, mm -hmm. then the prostate is going to grow and you're also going to be at a higher risk for type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great summary. Um, I'd be interested to see what various experts have to say, uh, other than ourselves, I guess. Um, so who would you seek out? Would you seek out a trichologist for its effects on hair? What most people, a lot of people are interested in this for. Would you seek out a urologist for its effect on prostate cancer, BPH? Would you seek out an endocrinologist? Would you seek out an embryologist? Would you seek out an endocrinologist? Would you seek out a dermatologist for its benefits in the skin, an ophthalmologist for its potential effects in the eye? Um, would you seek out a cardiologist for its benefit on cardiac remodeling and LVH, ventricular hypertrophy? Uh, like, how, how do you get a balanced approach to this? Or should we just I'd ask, ask my some... family doctor for a referral to each of those specialists to talk about using dutasteride. Or I would just go to a family medicine specialist who knows a lot about all of those things and the drugs. Hmm. Uh, that's interesting. And I think that's a... A good example of why it's so difficult to have a balanced approach for this drug. A lot of times when you do the specialist ping pong, where you go and um, someone's on a medication and it's having a benefit in one system, and that specialist strongly wants you to continue that medication because of its benefit in their system, then the other specialist does not want you to continue it because it's having a detriment in that uh, system. This reminds me of when I used to work the cardiology floor, the cardiologist and nephrologist would go back and forth. Classic. Cardiologists <laughs> love the Lasix and the nephrologist up to a point will tolerate the Lasix. And they're like, okay, you gotta stop doing this. I know it's working, but um, yeah, that's an interesting tug of war that happens there. Um, so one of these experts, actually, they were both urologists that were on the Drive podcast with uh, Peter Atia, uh, who's a medical doctor as well. Uh, Dr. Kira, I believe, made the appearance first. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's a urologist. I believe he also has a master's degree in public health. Uh, and I found this to be a, a really enjoyable you know, podcast for the portions that I listen to. Um, a couple of good things, like he mentioned CAG repeats, which... Mm -hmm. Outside of our clinic, I really haven't seen people like that are aware of this or are testing for this. So maybe he listened to the Gillette Health podcast we did on that years yeah, ago. He was actually doing these CAG repeat testings when he was a fellow, hmm. um, from what I recall. So one of the early users, I don't know if he's using it in practice now, uh, but pretty interesting. He also does some research on patients who uh, have this association with taking finasteride and then developing post finasteride syndrome. So it Certainly more research does need to be done in that area. Um, it's nice that he is you know, accepting of that because you have some people. Uh, and in fact, I think the American Urological Association doesn't formally recognize post-finasteride syndrome. So you have a lot of urologists and physicians that say, oh, this is just 100% um, psychosomatic. And then you have others that are saying, uh, and maybe he falls a little bit into this category, overestimating the prevalence of it. Yeah. Um, uh, another good thing was that he discussed Tadalafil as a ED yes. preventive. He was a Tadalafil enjoyer. That was definitely good to see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we've talked about many of these same things. The 
the interesting thing that uh, we've seen, not just with uh, this physician, but with many, is comparing the incidence of side effects from finasteride to the incidence of post-finasteride syndrome. Yeah, in his response, because I think uh, Peter T was asking about, like, what's the ballpark number? How many people are getting a long-term issue from this? Yep. Um, and he said it's above 5%. So that would mean, based on last year's prescriptions, you have about 125,000 men with permanent sexual dysfunction from finasteride. Seems like a stretch that that would not have gained some traction up until this point. Yeah, I could see 10,000, uh, over 100,000. Um, it's kind of hard to say. Now, keep in mind, most of these men that were started on finasteride had no baseline labs taken in regards to DHT or testosterone or certainly progesterone or pregnenolone or their progestogen pool, um, or certainly not CAG repeats either. But um, the, I guess the takeaway from this is it's good that he's discussing PFS, but um, it's important to say we really don't have a good idea of what the incidence or prevalence of PFS is. We just know that with certain treatments, it tends to get better, but many of the times there's a question mark of what was the preceding hormonal status or the preceding sexual health status of individuals that have PFS. Yeah, I mean, a, a great case would be someone who thinks they have post-finasteride syndrome, and it turns out they have a microprolactinoma that's causing their marked sexual dysfunction. So it's not always the finasteride that's causing this. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to dig deeper, do kind of a full workup, just like you would for any other patient who is like struggling with sexual function. You know, maybe it's not the finasteride. Maybe they have, you know, a 70% blockage in their coronaries and then they have, you know, plaque throughout their entire arterial system. So there's yeah. a lot of different things that can be at play here. You can't just say, oh, well, you know, this happens. Post-finasteride syndrome is definitely a zebra. And there's a lot of things that are more likely to cause sexual dysfunction mm -hmm. than finasteride. Yeah. Um, one other thing that they talked about is... Uh, type 1 versus type 2 5-alpha rosectase. And in the 90s, certainly before type 3 was discovered, it was thought of uh, dichotomy as either type 1 or type 2. And as we'll mention later, I have a quote from a study down in a different section, type 3 5-alpha reductase is of particular importance, especially in prostate cancer. So that's uh, very important for your, uh, you know, a urologist that's their on-brand specialty to uh, keep in mind what's happening with type 3, 5-alpha reductase, and certainly comparing finasteride and dutasteride as both being equal type 3, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors would not be a good comparison. But I really enjoyed this discussion. Um, I also thought that he had great hair, um, probably likely a very good hair transplant surgeon. So at some point, I'll be seeking out a similar surgeon for myself. Um, so uh, props to him for that. Um, and just in general, having a reasonably balanced approach to 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate uh, both Dr. T and Dr. Kareth putting out this content. Uh, and then the most recent one was Dr. Schaefer, who is a medical doctor and also has a PhD. Mm -hmm. um, I believe he is sort of zeroed in on the epigenetics of prostate cancer and in sequencing 
these samples and these cancers, trying to get closer to a precision medicine approach, um, which is pretty cool. He's doing good research. Um, mm -hmm. I think the biggest uh, pro from this podcast was actually really harping on how men need to be aware and their physicians and NPs also need to be aware that finasteride will affect the PSA. So if you are going to a pop-up telemed clinic and you're taking your finasteride and that's not being pulled into your physician's EHR, then you know you could have a PSA that's rising and no one's aware of it. And then you're going to have a higher degree, a higher grade of prostate cancer. So you know, empowering men and, and taking ownership of this and then definitely informing your physician or NP of everything that you're taking is yeah, super important. And I'm glad that he brought that up. Yeah, it's not uncommon to see a PSA drop uh, by 50% or drop in half. Um, so if your PSA proceeding is six and you're borderline between getting a biopsy or doing expectant management and it drops to three, then that's expected. But if it stays at six, then it may as well have doubled to 12. So that's a very good clinically significant takeaway. Yeah. I think so. And next we had his take on finasteride, which uh, he said he doesn't prescribe, never prescribes it in his practice. Um, I don't know if this is just, you know, a result of some bad patient encounters. It sounds like he has a, you know, plethora of other medications he uses for lower urinary symptoms. And there are procedures that can be used there. Yeah. So he's chosen in his practice to simply avoid prescribing any 5-alpha-reductase inhibitors. Um, and he said it was also sort of a scam to take daily finasteride because that five milligram dose would hang around for a week or two. So if you're looking at some of the single dose studies, uh, it looks like, yeah, if after a week, you're still going to have a statistically significantly lower dose or lower amount of DHT in the serum. Um, caveat here is we really don't know how much is in the scalp. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any volunteers out there who are going to take a dose of finasteride and then get seven scalp biopsies over the next week. Um, so we probably won't get that answer, but based on the serum levels, this uh, makes about as much sense as taking your Repatha every other month. Um, while you still may have a lower level of LDL and ApoB, you're really not going to be getting the longer, lower level over a period of time. Yeah, there, uh, which there'd is be what a you huge want. peak in trough. So yeah, once a week, five milligram finasteride, certainly do not recommend, um, just as we do not recommend Repatha. Uh, every third month or a injection of testosterone cypionate every third week. Yeah, it looks like if you followed a protocol of five MIGs once a week, you would kind of uh, dip down initially to DHT of about 25, someone with an average DHT level to start, and then it would slowly climb back up to what looks to be about 45 by day seven. So that perhaps he misspoke and meant to say dutasteride, which we know is very different pharmacokinetics. Yes. yes. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of discussion of dutasteride in either podcast. And to play devil's advocate, yes, even after you got to a steady state of doing this for a couple months, you would still peak and trough. Um, it just would not, it obviously wouldn't peak and trough to 50 and 25. It'd probably peak and trough to um, 15 and 40. Yeah. And then here's what you were mentioning about prostate cancer. And, you know, even though type two is the predominant 5AR enzyme in the prostate, let's say the normal prostate, the one without cancer, uh, things change and get scrambled um, in a number of conditions, you know, prostate cancer and BPH. So uh, why is this important and why might this steer someone towards um, either dutasteride instead of finasteride or even a combination? 
Yeah, um, the intrachronology of the 5 alpha reduction of various androgens can be upregulated. And uh, it is known that the newly discovered, it's now no longer newly discovered, this paper is from, uh, this is uh, Yamana et al. I believe it was from about 10 years ago. But the newly discovered type 3 5 alpha reductase um, uh, has uh, higher expression levels than type 1 and type 2 in most peripheral tissues and prostate cancer, and in fact, breast cancer cell lines. I wonder if they were talking about androgen receptor positive, triple negative breast cancer. I'm not sure on that, but certainly of prostate cancer cell lines. And it suggests that um, type three plays a very important role in these tissues. So the takeaway is that if you're not inhibiting type three, even if you're inhibiting type two and type one completely, or if you're not inhibiting type three very strongly, then um, you're having a lot of androgen-mediated growth of that prostate cancer. But didn't they say that type one, or didn't they say that finasteride is an inhibitor of type three? That's true. The same paper found that finasteride does in fact inhibit type three to some degree, but not nearly as potent as dutasteride. And, and we'll run through those numbers. Um, yep. Another, he also commented on post-finasteride syndrome, which is you know, sort of gaining some ground, gaining some traction in the tension. And the figures he threw out were somewhere between 5 and 15%. Um, he didn't say that I'm saying it's between 5 and 15%, like me, Dr. Schaefer, this is what I think it is. He said some people will tell you 5%, some people will tell you 15%. If we split the difference, then that's a quarter of a million men who, just based on last year's prescribing numbers, would have permanent sexual dysfunction. And I think that's a you know, drastic overestimate. Uh, if we say it's one in 10,000, I, I think it'd be fair to say, yeah, some people will say it's one in 10,000. Some people will say it's 15%. Like you'll have people on all extremes. And if you go onto some forums, some people will say it's 100%. Yeah. Um, what I would say is it depends on the patient population that you are selecting for. So if you stratify the patient, not just based on objective data, so not just based on labs, but also based on history, family history, predispositions to already have side effects that finasteride can um, induce, then you're going to have, you know, you can select that patient population and know these individuals are very likely to have side effects, whereas others are much less likely to have side effects. Yeah. So, was, you know, if you talked about baseline lab work, screening for anxiety, screening for depression, mm -hmm. family histories of both of those, especially in first degree relatives, um, you can get a drastically lower outcome uh, or lower bad outcome. And you can see who is a good candidate and who is someone who uh, at this point in their life probably shouldn't take one of these medications or certainly shouldn't take it at full strength at this time. Um, he did mention that there are alternatives to finasteride. He talked about his own experience. Uh, balding at a young age, and he suggested that a uh, young man could pursue a hair transplant instead, which isn't quite apples to apples. You know, a transplant may cost in the five-figure range, and yeah. finasteride is, um, if you go to Mark Cuban's pharmacy, less than 50 bucks a year. Yeah, and Thor has had a few hair transplants as well. I know he talks about it on the social media. So some people do just have hair transplants, but if you're starting to have androgenic alopecia at an early age, then you only have so many potential hairs for grafting and eventually you're not going to be able to continue to have hair transplants. And if you continue to have 
fast progression of your alopecia behind where they graft. And yes, if you have a better surgeon, they'll graft it in so that you're um, going to have a longer time to notice a progression of alopecia of your non-grafted hair. But still, it can become quite obvious if you have fast progression. Yeah. Is these the ones where you see sort of a floating island of hair at the hairline and then uh, a bald scalp and crown area? Mm -hmm. So uh, definitely something to consider there. Transplant, especially when it's done younger, uh, more than likely you're going to have to go back and have repeat procedures if you're not taking um, medication as a preventive. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the risks of kind of broadcasting you know, what, in our opinion, are kind of inflated figures? Uh, of how many people actually have, and we're not talking about just a transient side effect, we're talking about a permanent syndrome uh, is what they're calling it. So, you know, s saying that, yes, one in 10 men are going to have this. Uh, what are some of the downsides of broadcasting this inflated figure? The nocebo effect is certainly very strong. Um, it is a well-known effect where it's similar to placebo, except instead of getting the benefit um, with nocebo, you get the side effect. And um, now that the, uh, you know, people Google side effects of finasteride and post-finasteride syndrome will pop up. And it's good to be aware of and to discuss with your healthcare provider, but a lot of individuals that are discussing this with their healthcare provider, they still have not heard of post-finasteride syndrome, although I think a lot of them have been last year. Um, but it is leading to um, more nocebo effect and more individuals thinking that they have either a finasteride syndrome or a post-finasteride syndrome that otherwise would not have those symptoms. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely creating a spike of anxiety in some individuals. There's uh, sort of three levels to understanding drugs and drug side effects. There's like, uh, if you're blissfully unaware, it, you're very rarely going to have side effects from medications because, mm -hmm. you know, Typically, common medications, you know, they don't have a ton of side effects that come along with them. Uh, and then you sort of have this middle ground where people are aware of medications and side effects and they do their research. And, and that's your group that is most likely to get side effects. And you get to, let's call it level three, where you understand side effects, you understand how often they happen, you understand they happen at placebo, and you understand the nocebo effect. And you can sort of reason through all those things and not overthink it. Um, I, I suppose we call that side effect enlightenment. Um, then you can kind of see through, oh, okay, you know, maybe this stomach ache or this headache I got today isn't that pill or that supplement that I just took. Um, I'll see if it happens again, you know, next week, something like that. Yeah, it's the Punnett Square of Health. And again, what the Punnett Square of Health is, is you want to be in the category where you're um, being objective about things and making smart decisions about what tools and lifestyle changes you implement. Um, but you also don't want to catastrophize about things. You don't want to take on the sick role. And often um, those that do think that they're choosing between impotence and having hair, that is certainly something that can be associated with healthcare trauma and taking on the sick role, especially an individual who would otherwise greatly benefit from, um, you know, think of a perfect candidate of a 5-alpha-reductase inhibitor, Maybe they're not a great candidate for finasteride, but maybe a very small dose of dutasteride would do this individual uh, a lot of good. Perhaps they're on TRT, a steady state level of an androgen. Perhaps they have left ventricular hypertrophy. They have cystic acne. Their hair also happens to be thinning. They have BPH and they're a very high risk of prostate cancer. Maybe they even have a, uh, let's say they have a prostate cancer that is 
um, very, very low Gleason score, and they're doing expectant management of it. They're literally a perfect candidate. And maybe they're scared off of taking dutasteride because their healthcare provider says, you need to be very cognizant of taking both finasteride and dutasteride. Um, so there's uh, certainly potentially harm to both overestimating and underestimating the uh, potential for finasteride side effects and post-finasteride syndrome. Yeah, and that's a great point. Someone who has a known prostate cancer, I mean, if you're 50 years old, I think it's about a 50-50 that you have at least some atypical cells or yep. maybe a low-grade prostate cancer. And whether that's going to ever cause a problem, you know, a lot of that is you know, hereditary. If you look back at family history, um, exposure to carcinogens, uh, and then you know, how, much, how many growth factors you have, different vectors that are going to accelerate that growth. So for that person, you know, and this has actually been studied, like you take dutasteride, you have both a lower prevalence, a lower incidence of prostate cancer occurrence, and then also uh, slower progression, not zero progression. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it, it's very unlikely that taking you know, even a low dose or a daily dose of dutasteride is going to cause permanent sexual dysfunction. What's much more concrete is if you have a prostatectomy, a tremendous amount of those patients are going to have permanent sexual dysfunction from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think that's a pretty good summary of potential downsides of um, overemphasizing side effects from finasteride and dutasteride. Another thing that kind of occurred to me is if an individual is, let's say they're on a supraphysiologic level of androgens or TRT plus whatnot, um, then they should especially consider it. Um, even its effects, you know, the, just like there can be some deleterious effects on your cognitive functioning, your prefrontal cortex certainly is responsive to DHT and has a high level of um, 5 alpha reductase. Um, if you have too much of that androgenic pool, you'd be drunk with your androgens, which could essentially be considered roid rage. And yes, um, taking more or less androgens does not change who you are as a person, but it can certainly shift you along that continuum of neuroplasticity to where that could be a benefit for some individuals. Yeah. I mean, if you were on TRT and lost half your hair and your fear was that if you took anything, you were going to get post-finasteride syndrome because, hey, it's a 15% chance I get this. Mm -hmm. uh, that person may be pretty angry listening to this. They certainly might be. <laughs> uh, yeah, it kind of reminds me of the, we'll call it a bit of hysteria over statin medications and mm -hmm. the amount of side effects there. Uh, there's been some really interesting studies there, introducing these, reintroducing these, doing these blinded, um, and seeing that it's, it's really not, you know, 15 or 20% of people that can't tolerate statins. Um, but even so, this is circulated online and now, Many people are very statin hesitant and people that would benefit from a much more, you know, common condition and a much more life-threatening condition, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease or not taking medications that would probably benefit them. Certainly. And our local lipidologist, Dr. Moriarty at KU, deserves a lot of credit for publishing all sorts of strategies to help um, those who are previously statin intolerant tolerate statins at a very high um, percentage of success. So not to rabbit trail on that too much, but that's a good analogy. Yeah. So now, I guess post-finasteroid syndrome as a condition, it's not homogenous. Um, you have some people that say they got just chronically dry skin. Other people say they just lost their libido. Other people, it's just only erectile function. They still have to drive, mm -hmm. uh, but their libido is just, or their uh, function is just gone. They don't get erections anymore. 
haven't had an erection in a year. You know, there's all sorts of different experiences that people have. Um, there's some research that they've tried to do in, in rats and mice. And this isn't necessarily translatable because uh, in humans, the finasteride is very selective for type 2. Um, in mice, it has about an equal affinity for both of those isoenzymes in mice. I don't know if mice have a type 3 or not, or if that's been studied. Um, but at least for types 1 and 2, it's a pretty even split. Um, whereas is in humans, type 2 is where finasteride is working much, much more potently. The other thing about uh, researching PFS in rats is it's hard to get an insight into the psychiatric well-being of a rat. And there's also no standard de de uh, definition. So it's similar to studying PCOS in rats, but even a bit harder, or similar to studying maybe fibromyalgia in rats, which is pretty difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think you even, you know, like, well, you know, there's a continuum of, you know, a normal like libido and sexual function decline that can happen over the lifespan. And, and part of that is people like getting more self-control, like obviously at 28 compared to 18, hopefully you have a similar libido, but more self-control. So it may feel like your libido is a bit lower. Um, also, like you pose this question, does having a slightly lower libido at 55 than 25 mean that you have a post-finasteride syndrome if you took finasteride? I mean, you may have that lower libido later in life, but it's not necessarily the finasteride uh, that has done that. And there's people that have had like, a paradoxical reaction where they take finasteride and they're like, wow, that this gives me more libido. Mm -hmm. it, it's hard to explain why that happens, but you know, it's certainly not the case for everyone to expect a drop in libido. Most people don't even realize they're taking it other than you know, six months down the line, 12 months down the line, they notice, hey, I'm shedding less hair, my hair is thickening up if you're starting young enough, um, and you're seeing the positives of it. Yeah, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, after, I, after we had my uh, youngest son, I did an experiment during the postpartum period um, which in general, you want at least six weeks of pelvic rest across the board, where I took saw palmetto three times a day, uh, finasteride one milligram twice a day, and dutasteride 0.5 mg once a day. And I did this for about six weeks. And uh, unfortunately, I experienced no um, drop in libido. I did have slightly better skin. And I um, my 5-alpha reductase exposure and the other various things that I've done in my regimen, which we'll talk about in a different podcast, I uh, certainly had a benefit with the quality and quantity of my hair, um, which is not a toupee, by the way, but thank you for the commenters <laughs> that think that I have a hair system. Um, but uh, yeah, no, no experience personally, but also, as I've mentioned, I have very few CAG repeats, although that doesn't necessarily seem to extremely closely align, but that is my experience. Yeah, and now if we go to the package inserts for, uh, we actually have Propecia, which is one milligram finasteride. We have Proscar, which is five milligram finasteride. And then we have Avodart, which is 0.5 milligram dutasteride. Um, and just kind of go down these percentages, uh, decreased libido in Propecia, 1.8% in finasteride, 1.3% in the placebo. Erectile dysfunction, 1.3% in finasteride, 0.7% in placebo. So very low absolute mm -hmm. percentages. Um, and if you're taking the one milligram of finasteride, it's probably because you're losing your hair, not because you have an enlarged prostate and you have to pee every 30 minutes or you're getting up seven times a night. Um, these are probably going to be a slightly healthier cohort 
which explains some of the figures that we might see for the mm -hmm. five milligram dose. One of the other parameters was ejaculation disorder, specifically decreased volume, and it was about 1.2% versus 0.7 in placebo. One thing that's not unusual to note, more so with dutasteride than finasteride, is uh, very watery semen. So it's not, uh, it's a clear colored, it's not unusual to see, it's more liquid-like. So that is, uh, they didn't study it in this um, adverse effect area, but I bet that that incidence is much higher. Yeah, and that may not be distressing to every person. Some people are going to notice this and, and sort of have a, mm -hmm. a freak out moment if it's not made aware to them. Yep, you Other should people, expect it. They expect it. It's like, okay, this is no big deal. I know that my sperm count is maybe dropping a little bit, but I, everything is still functioning as it should be. Yep. So I'm going to go to the, uh, this is actually one of the highest percentages we've seen in a, a big trial. Uh, five milligrams of finasteride, 8.1% impotence uh, year one, mm -hmm. and then placebo, 3.7%. So about a twofold increase. So a lot of these guys are getting erectile dysfunction due to, uh, I think, what is the other risk mm -hmm. factors? If you have BPH, like we talked about earlier, you're likely to be insulin resistant, have endothelial dysfunction, mm -hmm. high blood pressure, all these sorts of things that come along with it. And that was year one. Interestingly, in year two, three, and four, the incidence of impotence was 5.1% in both the ProScar and placebo group. Identical, yeah, for both impotence and decreased libido. So you go to year one for libido, 6.4% finasteride, 3.4% placebo. So again, not quite double, but pretty close. And then years two, three, and four, uh, Identical, 2.6%, 2.6%. So this sort of points to, uh, I think it's a dropout effect where people that are having adverse effects are going to drop out. Or perhaps it's an adjustment period um, where, like with finasteride, when someone first starts taking it, they get a sort of transient dip in sperm count. Um, and then you actually make some degree of recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, the body sort of figures out how to work around the lower DHT. Maybe it's that spike in testosterone. You probably have significantly higher intratesticular testosterone yep. being on a 5-alpha reductase mm -hmm. inhibitor. Um, so it's kind of interesting. You see this transient dip and then a recovery, at least with finasteride in, in terms of sperm. Yeah. If you cut the vodka out of your androgen pool and instead um, you become more sensitized to weaker androgens, weaker alcohols, then um, you can learn to have a similar effect at the receptor level as far as density um, with weaker androgens. So um, the other thing that looked like it had a durable effect is breast enlargement and tenderness. And um, that had a pretty low incidence of 0.5 and 0.4 respectively for finasteride and then 0.1 in placebo. And then it actually increased um, in placebo group to 1.1 and 0.3, and then 1.8 and 0.7 in years two, three, and four. Yeah. And this is where your androgen sensitivity is going to come into play. The CAG repeats we talked about. Um, and for some folks, they may be less sensitive to androgens when they lose that DHT signaling. Just the testosterone alone isn't enough if they're sensitive to estradiol to oppose that growth in the mammary tissue. Um, and there are some serms and medications you can use to push back against that. Mm -hmm. And it depends on how distressing that side effect is to the patient. That's a good summary. Uh, the next table is adverse reaction chart for dutasteride, which is Avidart.
Yeah. And this one, it actually stratified these into six month time periods, which is kind of neat to mm -hmm. see a little slice of the study. So uh, impotence, so erectile dysfunction, 4.7% in dutasteride, 1.7% in placebo. And this is the first six months. And uh, I believe this is the normal dosing, which is 0.5 per day. Daily. Correct. Which compared to finasteride, I would consider that a much stronger dose, given that what we consider the normal dose of dutasteride for hair loss prevention is something like 0.5 twice a week or even once a week. But the normal dose of finasteride for hair loss is likely something like 0.5 per day. So it's interesting to see a much lower impotence rate um, at month uh, zero to six, 4.7% versus 1.7. And by month seven to 12, it was actually less, not statistically significant, but it was only 1.4 where placebo had 1.5. So this is a, uh, this adverse reaction chart looks really good for dutasteride. Yeah, it does. I mean, you're dropping finasteride. The most inhibition you'll ever get is about 70% of DHT. Mm -hmm. uh, dutasteride, you can approach 90, even 95%, depending on the dosing. So it's much more DHT lowering. And then this is also treating the same condition. So you'd imagine there's similar cohorts. Yep. Now, I, we can't say that, oh, there's this many diabetics, this many diabetics in this one. Um, you know, we don't have the, the data scientists to kind of tease out those mm -hmm. things and go back and look at these thousands of patients. Um, but it's reassuring for dutasteride. And you see sort of this, I don't know if this is the sort of dropout phenomenon or a, a tolerance again, but you see the numbers as the months went on, start off with a little over 2,000 patients, ended up with about 1,600 in both groups. So you actually see a, looks like a similar dropout in the placebo group as well. So it doesn't look like it's just people that are quitting the drug because it's causing side effects. Yeah, and given the incidence of low testosterone, you'd think that more than 5% of these individuals have hypogonadal levels of testosterone to start. Yeah, so I, I'm not surprised at all if you're blindly giving dutasteride and high doses of finasteride to aging males with BPH, I'm not surprised that three to 8% of them are going to get some sort of sexual dysfunction. Now, does that mean it's permanent sexual dysfunction? Uh, that answer is pretty clearly no. Like whenever you withdraw that medication, uh, especially if it's for a short period of time, then you're very likely to go back to your baseline state. Um, may take a week, may take two weeks, especially depending on the half-life of the dutasteride that's in your mm -hmm. system. Um, but my advice for people who are taking this and experiencing something like that, uh, don't continue taking the medication. Uh, you don't want to deprive yourself of your net androgens for a long period of time. Uh, those are some of, you know, anecdotally the cases that we've seen where they are, you know, having persistent symptoms and then sort of having a slow recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost like a post-androgen deprivation syndrome yep. um, where they've deprived themselves. And now you're basically getting all the androgen receptors and getting things back online as these levels return to normal or you know, are brought back up to a normal level manually. Yeah, I think that's the best analogy as we know quite a bit about post-androgen deprivation therapy syndrome or post-ADT. Um, for some individuals, it seems to be quite similar. And then for some, uh, not so much. But as you mentioned, we don't know the baseline health status. If they have symptoms after they stop, then it's hard to say, especially if they took it for 20 years until they're 65, how's their endothelial function? How's their like, calyx? How's the, um, how's the, uh, the arteries, the perineal yeah, is arteries? Is that your diabetic neuropathy or is that the finasteride that did that? Is that high LP little a? 
yeah, it hides LP a little A, another hidden cause of erectile dysfunction. Yeah. So uh, finasteride and dutasteride, believe it or not, had research chemical names at one point. Mm -hmm. uh, research chemicals are very popular now, peptides and, and other sorts of non-peptides that people call peptides. Uh, what do we what do we call finasteride back in the eighties? MK nine zero six. So it was MK before it was cool. Yeah, it sounds like a peptide. Anything with letters and numbers should be considered a peptide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was shocked at the dosages that they used in the phase one studies. So single doses with measurement of plasma DHT reductions up to four hundred milligrams a single dose. Wow. So that's a year's supply of Propecia down in one gulp, 400 milligrams of finasteride. And guess what? You didn't get any more than a 70% reduction in DHT is what it looks like here. Uh, you could save so dosing. much money if that was just a dollar capsule. You could split it into 400 pieces. Take one little particle per day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then they did chronic dosing, uh, 80 milligrams per day. Uh, for 12 weeks, 40 milligrams per day for 24 weeks, and mm. it was well tolerated. So if any dose of finasteride was going to give someone post-finasteride syndrome, uh, I would think that something like that would have emerged in these studies. Uh, but the pretty incredible doses and just something that was kind of shocking to me. Yeah. So it does appear that the syndrome, and we see this clinically as well, the syndrome depends more on the patient and the individual reaction to the medication and less so on the absolute dose. Yeah, and phase one studies are in healthy young adults and presumably healthy young men here looking at the DHT levels. So it's not surprising that these men took the drug, didn't have side effects to a large degree. And actually the lowest dose that they were trialing initially was 12 and a half milligrams. Yeah, <laughs> pretty how, interesting. How things have changed. Uh, Next is dutasteride. And I wish they named it GW. I love peptides or research chemicals that start with MK and GW. Yeah, unfortunately this one is GI198745. So that was dutasteride back in the day. Uh, single doses of up to 40 milligrams were used. Um, and basically, you take 40 milligrams a month later, you have an incredibly high amount of this drug still in your system. Um, mm -hmm. That is a ton of dutasteride, uh, daily dosing up to five milligrams for six months. So not quite proportionally as high as the finasteride, but that's still 10 times the um, dose that we use now on a yeah. daily basis on the higher ends. Um, and if you look at the way that dutasteride's pharmacokinetics are, that's probably a huge area under the yes. curve different than if you're taking the half milligram daily, taking five milligrams daily. That's where you can start to approach that 95, 97% reduction of serum DHT. Yeah, the dose of dutasteride that's been settled on for BPH and prostate cancer and its typical uses, uh, PMDD as well, um, is much higher than the dose of finasteride in most cases, uh, 0.5 per day, as you mentioned, and I believe it's been studied at 2.5 per day with efficacy for PMDD. Um, but as we mentioned before, and I believe I even included some of these in an Instagram post I made it at some point, um, but these are single dose studies and the 0.01 mg dose was not even detected whatsoever at, I believe, 30 minutes. It had such a fast half-life, and everybody, of course, is commenting of dutasteride as a half-life of 12 weeks because Google <laughs> told me so. It was detected so fast, they didn't even include the chart. 
Um, but as people can see, the 0.1 mg dose was half-life of less than a day. And then the one milligram dose, which is of course double the normal daily dose, has a half-life of something about uh, five to seven days, but uh, a significant amount was still around after about a week. Yeah, and again, this is presumably in healthy young subjects. Uh, I know that this, this may be the same post uh, from about a year ago yep. on Instagram where you detail the differences in finasteride metabolism and excretion in elderly versus young individuals. Um, and if they were doing these studies in older adults, like that 40 milligrams, maybe it sticks around for mm -hmm. six months. It makes a lot of sense with various other pharmaceutical drugs with multiple pharmacokinetic profiles, multiple different um, you know, uh, types of metabolism. You have you know, first order, zero order, you have these different orders of pharmacokinetics, but the takeaway is at a certain point, not just dutasteride, but also think common things like Tylenol or aspirin, um, that the first little bit is metabolized very quickly. Um, after that, the rest of it is metabolized very slowly. So once you overwhelm that, then um, that's when you get these really long half-lives. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty good, interesting history that a lot of people, I hope they find it interesting. I certainly did, of uh, the development of finasteride and dutasteride. Um, we don't talk a lot about anti-aging. The term kind of has a lot of connotations that comes with it and things that aren't necessarily anti-aging. Um, but the very uncool term that I use is preventing system decline or restoring system function. Um, so one of the things that you've spoken about quite a bit is the PDE5 enzyme um, and then using Tadalafil to normalize that. So, hey, you just slow this enzyme down to the speed it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and then your body is functioning more like it was when it was younger, at least from a nitric oxide standpoint. Yeah, I think that's the most natural functional approach that I can have. Uh, I do try to practice medicine as naturally as reasonable possible, although it's also the natural thing for us to turn to dust and die and get neurodegenerative disease and have impotence and not be able to move, but as naturally <laughs> as reasonably possible. So I love the microdose Tadalafil, the 2.5 daily, and you can always take nitrates or 5-alpha or uh, you can take 5-alpha reductase <laughs> inhibitors on top of it, but you can take other PDE5 inhibitors on top of it. Um, and you can make the same case for dutasteride. I would say for the right individual, a 2.5 milligram daily dose of Tadalafil plus a individualized dose of dutasteride would be my top two anti-aging all in general uh, stack. Yeah, that would be a pretty good stack for the genitourinary system, as well as the other sort of satellite systems that uh, dutasteride and PDE5s are going to work on, cardiovascular being another. Um, and, you know, we talked about earlier about 50-50, if you're 50 years old, that you have some prostate cancer. So that would speak to a lot of men already having dysregulation of the 5AR enzymes, yeah. type 3 and type 1. So if you're 50 years old, like there's a 50-50 that you're going to benefit from going on some dutasteride from a prostate cancer standpoint, mm -hmm. let alone a BPH standpoint. Because if you have, let's say, 35 years old, you don't have any urinary issues, your prostate's a normal size. Your you SHBG isn't sky high. Yeah. Your DHT isn't sky high. Let's say you go on a once-weekly dutasteride because you don't want to go too aggressive. You, you don't really want to feel it. You don't want to know you're taking it. Mm -hmm. Over a long period of time, having a slightly lower DHT and then targeting those two enzymes that get dysregulated in the prostate, 
I think could have a really outsized effect. And we'll never see a study done like that. But theoretically, that would prevent the development and certainly progression of a lot of prostate cancers and a lot of BPH. Yeah, I'd much rather have that than oily, leathery skin uh, that I would likely have otherwise than um, multiple other hair transplants. Yeah, and you have this chart here. Um, there's not a lot of research done here kind of quantifying the activity of 5AR, but at least in the stromal cells of prostate, there seems to be a pretty clear, at least from this small study, like an age-dependent upregulation uh, in total 5AR activity. Mm -hmm. So you look at the the twenty year old controls versus the subjects with BPH and and those with BPH they have a lot more five AR activity. Here's another interesting thought: the uh, speaking of individuals with high five AR activity or high SHBG delivering a lot of androgen to tissue or low CAG repeats, very sensitive androgens. A lot of people say, "Well, I'm gonna just shave it, bro," or they say, "You know, I was bald when I was twenty, so I don't care about finasteride or dutasteride." Those could be the individuals that should care the most because if they get prostate cancer, they get prostate cancer more often and it is more severe when they do get it. So just because you don't have your hair doesn't mean that you shouldn't consider dutasteride. In fact, for prostate cancer reasons, and I have a lot of prostate cancer and pathology in my family, again, as I've talked about in the past, um, very severe and very early in age, then you might be a better candidate for that. Yeah, I mean, there's some really interesting correlation. I mean, you see balding and heart disease, balding and prostate cancer, and the CAG repeat number certainly fits into that, as well as your total exposure to androgens over the lifetime. Mm -hmm. And then, obviously, all the lifestyle factors that go into play. Um, earlier, we mentioned that dutasteride and finasteride are not the same drug. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, well, it's just like finasteride, but dutasteride's stronger. Yeah, it works better. It causes more side effects. And we think as far as a side effect, that tends to be the opposite. And there's certainly not a post-dutasteride syndrome that has been well characterized. Although if someone has low net androgens, go on dutasteride, deprive yourself of most androgens for a year or five years. Like, yeah, you could probably get some of that syndrome going on. Mm -hmm. uh, but looking at the different tissues here, this is kind of the best resource that we have um, basically figuring out what enzymes are active in what tissues that goes beyond just type one and two. Yeah. So I believe this was from what, maybe a decade ago, mm -hmm. um, whenever type three was sort of first coming into the research space. So they've got your prefrontal cortex, your heart, prostate with BPH, the regular prostate. You can really see how dysregulated type two, type three, and even type one is much yeah. higher if you're looking at the prostate there. So I look, Type three in the testicle makes sense why yep. dutasteride is causing more fertility issues. Yep. But wait, I thought that urologist said finasteride is a type three inhibitor. Why doesn't it cause a lot of issues? Because it's about 150th the strength of inhibiting uh, type three 5-alpha reductase. A couple notes. Um, not all assays for assessing the receptor affinity are um, equally accurate. So there's a lot of different assays that have been used both on finasteride and dutasteride, but also on many different herbs. Um, we've talked about curcuminoids and there we talked about black pepper fruit extract. We've talked about salt palmetto, lots of other ones, pumpkin seed oil, we could go on and on. Um, even different botulinum toxins and they're um, anti-androgenic, but not anti-5-alpha reductase activity. But um, anyway, from our best estimates or from a, a reasonably accurate assay, Dutasteride is about 50 times stronger 
uh, for isoenzyme 3. Finasteride is about four times stronger for isoenzyme 2. So dutasteride is not really a, a, yes, it's a triple inhibitor, but it's so much weaker on type 2 relative to the other isoenzymes. When you adjust the dose, the relative receptor affinity is what you want to look at. You don't necessarily look at the absolute receptor affinity, because even if dutasteride and finasteride had the same exact receptor affinity for type 2 5-alpha reductase, if you take a way lower, way less frequent dose of dutasteride, that would be weaker. But yes, finasteride is about four times stronger on type 2. Um, and then dutasteride is about 13 times stronger on type 1. So they're yeah. opposite medications. That's the takeaway at the layman's level. Dutasteride and finasteride, yes, they're both 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, but they are opposite. Yeah, and it's interesting that you see a lot of tissues that apparently don't have any or much at all in terms of 5-alpha reductase type 2 activity. Mm -hmm. So in theory, the finasteride should leave you know, mammary tissue alone, but we know that's not always the mm -hmm. case because there is going to be some men who take finasteride and they develop you know, breast enlargement. So it, mm -hmm. it's not 100% clean. Nothing is clean and dry and cut like that in medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe you have an analogy uh, with plumbing referring to the synthesis of hormones and then the, the hormones in the bloodstream and then its activity in the tissue, at which we know, you know the testosterone gets to the tissue and then that's where the DHT conversion happens. Um, and then that's sort of leaking out into the bloodstream. So measuring bloodstream DHT doesn't necessarily, like, just because you have a low DHT in the bloodstream doesn't necessarily mean that, okay, you wiped out all the DHT in all of your tissues. Yeah, exactly. If, if the plumbing throughout your house is your blood and you're measuring, so as androgens are synthesized and also leaking out into the bloodstream from both directions, yes, you can measure that, but it doesn't really tell you if you have a clogged drain and you have no water in one of the rooms of your house. Just like if you have a very normal serum DHT or a slightly decreased serum DHT, you could have an both an extremely high DHT, for example, in a prostate cancer cell line, um, or an extremely low DHT, uh, for example, in penile skin, and not see that reflected in serum. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll throw up a graphic of that. I think it's a good way to kind of visualize it because that does become very complex when you're looking at all these different layers. There's so many layers. If 5-alpha if reductase was a cake, would it be at least a 10-layer cake, 12-layer cake? <laughs> at least. Um, but yeah, you have different affinities of the 5-alpha reductase enzyme to other hormones besides testosterone and progesterone, which we kind of scratch the surface of. Um, and then as well as like what's happening in the tissue level as opposed to the blood level and then the individual sensitivity. So it's not an easy topic. Uh, and, you know, props to anyone doing research in these areas or talking about these things, um, trying to bring more awareness to just how complex it all is. Yeah, hopefully this has been helpful and hopefully it will be well received by individuals who are both um, in the dichotomy of for and against 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. And if nothing else, hopefully it's been entertaining and helped explain some concepts. So as always, we appreciate your time for watching um, and uh, let us know if there's any questions or personal experiences in the comment section. All of that helps the algorithm. Absolutely. Please comment and thank you for your time. May God bless you with health and happiness.